This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Jack Hiddery. He's the CEO of Sandbox AQ. Jack is a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of several tech companies, including Earthweb Dice, which he led from its founding through IPO. He's a trustee of the XPRIZE Foundation and has been a board member of Trickle Up, which helps thousands of entrepreneurs start small businesses each year. Jack is also the author of Quantum Computing, an Applied Approach. This book, now in its second edition, is one of the leading textbooks in the field and is used both in undergraduate and PhD programs, as well as in corporate training sessions. Jack's company, Sandbox AQ, has been developing practical AI and quantum tech solutions for the past five years in order to address real-world business, scientific, and computational challenges. The company spun out from a division of Alphabet this past March and has been building momentum ever since. His company was selected by NIST as one of only 12 technology collaborators for the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. Sandbox AQ is helping the government and other clients develop practices to facilitate migration from current public key cryptography algorithms to replacement algorithms that are resistant to quantum computer-based attacks. So welcome, Jack, and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. So, Jack, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective is twofold, to give our audience a sense of what you did before you founded EarthWeb and then joined Google and Alphabet and now Sandbox AQ, but also to orient our audience more broadly to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you could please share with our listeners a little bit about your background and past so far, maybe where you grew up and where you went to school and what you studied and insight into the companies and organizations where you worked. Sure, Chris. First of all, it's great to be here. And I think it is fascinating. Quantum uh, technology is an emerging field and people take very, very different pathways to come and join in on this very exciting movement. And in my own case, I was always fascinated by technology as a kid. I started coding at the age of, I think, probably 11 or 12. I found a coding camp uh, for the summer uh, the year later, about age of 13, and uh, sent myself there for three years, three summers in a row, and absolutely <laughs> loved uh, all the coding and all the knowledge of how computers would, would shape the world. And so I was convinced at a very early age that uh, computing, and then ultimately, as I learned about high-performance computing and distributed computing, and then of course, as we really started to understand the implications of the internet and connecting all of us, uh, it became clear to me, as it became clear to so many others, that uh, this was going to absolutely transform our daily existence. Uh, it would change not only our day-to-day lives, but also how we do science, how we discover uh, new ideas, and how we change and impact the world itself. So that was always something that, that I kept with. Adding to that, I was always fascinated about how things worked. And so uh, as I got into the brain, I wanted to understand how the brain worked and started studying neuroscience. Uh, <laughs> at the same time, I also uh, was picking up quite a bit of physics because one of the ways to study the brain is with a functional MRI. So an MRI, of course, the uh, listening audience here will be familiar with an MRI machine to take snapshots, very high resolution snapshots of the brain. 
But people may be less familiar, Chris, with another kind of imaging modality, which is fMRI and the F for functional MRI. So this is where we can take an MRI machine and soup it up and drive it up so quickly that you can actually turn it into a a movie camera of sorts. And you can see how the brain is functioning and what parts of the brain are lighting up uh, when different activities are being engaged by, by the brain. So for example, if you're moving your right uh, index finger, uh, we can point to a place on your left hemisphere of your brain that would be driving that movement. Uh, and similarly, if we're listening to uh, an audio uh, podcast like this, parts of your brain are lighting up in different ways, or if you're doing a visual task or driving a car. And so fMRI has become a very fascinating and important tool for understanding how the brain works. But of course, fMRI was created by physicists. It's quantum physics that drives uh, that drives the technology of MRI. Wow. And it, MRI, of course, standing for magnetic resonance imaging uh, and the superconducting coils inside of MRI. I know that when we're inside MRI, the, the main thing we're all concerned about is the banging noise. But <laughs> inside that MRI, there's actually a set of superconducting coils that are cooled down to very low temperatures uh, so that they do uh, go into superconducting mode. And that provides the beautiful magnetic field that we uh, that we lie in in order to have the MRI work. So there's a lot of physics. And I became very interested in the quantum physics that drives these kinds of machines and understanding what quantum tells us about the world. So I was able to combine studies in quantum uh, mechanics and physics able to combine that with imaging, neuroimaging, studies of the brain and neuroscience, and to continue my studies then uh, in a fellowship at the National Institutes of Health, combining all these different fields. And I think from the get-go, Chris, I was always somebody who was sitting at the, and loved to sit at the nexus of different disciplines and fields. I think too often, Chris, you know that our university system for better or worse, had to uh, and felt it needed to separate itself into silos called departments. And we have a department of physics and a department of biology and neuroscience and so on and so forth. And uh, I've always been more enamored by when you bring these different disciplines together. And quantum information science, QIS, we'll call it, say in this, uh, we now call it in the field, is, is a wonderful blend, Chris, of mathematics, of computer science, of quantum physics, of information theory, uh, so many different aspects come into that. And then when we look at AI, which uh, again, I started programming my first neural networks uh, right there uh, at NIH uh, in the early days of neural networks before they became very popular. Of course, they were inspired by our understanding of neuroscience, right? So you really had to bring neuroscience and computer science together if you were to drive innovation in what today we call deep learning, we couldn't do deep learning back when I started because we didn't have the computing power to have that many hidden layers. But today, of course, it is gone. But it's all inspired, of course, by the distributed architecture, the nodal architecture of the brain. So both for AI, which absolutely uh, enthralled me from an early age, as well as uh, the combination of physics and bringing that together, that was really my, the heart of where I started my journey in life. And I was so fortunate in life to be able to gain also the business skills 
to build companies. Uh, you mentioned uh, one of the companies I built uh, with my brother and friend, uh, and that gave us a lot of skills and knowledge and experience the hard way uh, in the real world about how do you raise money? How do you build a team? How do you lead people? How do you engage with customers? And so that experience really helped me over the years, Chris. Yeah. When again, in a technology that was emerging and nascent and people didn't really know what it was going to be back in the early days of the internet, right? It's sort of similar model, pattern matching. Yeah, exactly. You know, having been now through a number of waves of new innovation, you could see some patterns. It's exactly correct. You know, one of the things that excites me right now about uh, how quantum technology is evolving is that we are seeing people from many different disciplines join us. Uh, and we do want to see an increased number of uh, diverse candidates joining in on both PhD programs and master's programs, but also in on-the-job training. Most people who are going to join this field are already in the workplace. Uh, so that the majority of technologists who will join this field are working in something right now in technology. Uh, it could be in cybersecurity, traditional cybersecurity, for example, that could transition into quantum-based cyber, quantum-safe cyber. It could be people who are working today in optimization, and they could transfer their skill sets into quantum-driven optimization. Uh, it could be people working in pharmaceutical as we gain new platforms for quantum chemical simulation. So the majority of people who will join in this revolution, Chris, already are in the workplace. And the question, uh, I know that uh, one of the topics we want to discuss today is workforce development, is how do we train the, the thousands and thousands of people that we need uh, to bring into this field. Yeah, though that's great insight, Jack. Thank you for sharing that for sure. I think because people are definitely scratching their heads. And we'll, I have a workforce question for you I want to pose later. Okay. Um, but let's talk about Sandbox AQ. So in March of this year, um, yes. this company that you founded in 2016 while at Alphabet and, you know, emerged. You've been relatively quiet for you know, the past five plus years. But this past spring, you were finally ready to share with the world more about the company. So tell me about this long gestation period, what went on, you know, about developing the tech, maybe building a team. Were you poised and waiting for the most impactful market opportunity to emerge or tell us about That's a that? a great question, Chris. For myself and my team, it was really a question of exploring a broad landscape initially. One of the things I found that very helpful in starting an impactful, a high impact company is don't narrow yourself too early uh, and too much. In other words, first start exploring a broader landscape before you get yourself in just to one slot. And that's what my team and I did for a number of years, really exploring the nexus of, of AI, of quantum technologies, broadening ourselves beyond just quantum computing. Of course, quantum computing is is a wonderful uh, and high impact technology that will that will affect all of us uh, living on planet Earth. And I got so enthralled by that that decided that we we needed a a new textbook for the for the field and set about <laughs> taking my lecture notes. I was giving lectures and classes on quantum computing inside of Google and elsewhere. And I realized that what was needed was a modern textbook uh, for the field. And so uh, went about to to write that textbook and uh, 20, end of 2019, the first textbook came out. And then uh, over the next 18 months, uh, despite the fact that 
that was already now the COVID period. Uh, people were writing into me saying, Jack, thanks for the book. This is my on-ramp. People use it at that term a lot, Chris, the on-ramp to quantum computing, but they had suggestions as to how to add to the book. And so literally the second edition almost wrote itself because I just followed the readers. I just took their insights uh, that they offered to me and suggestions. And I turned that into the second edition and Springer. I want to thank Springer on this podcast because Springer, the publisher, uh, to their credit, normally their cadence, Chris, is like a new edition every five years. In this case, it was just 18 months because this field is moving so quickly, even during the COVID uh, period. But what that experience, uh, Chris, taught me of teaching quantum computing and then turning my lectures into a, into a textbook and hearing from the readers is that there's a tremendous uh, interest in that area. But back to your question about our gestation period, what I realized is that uh, while we, we really are excited about quantum computers, it's going to be a number of years before they're going to be impactful in our day-to-day -day workflow uh, in the energy sector, the pharma sector, the, the cybersecurity sector. It's going to be a number of years. And so we started to also broaden our horizon, Chris, in terms of looking at other quantum technologies that would be impactful. For example, uh, in the cybersecurity area, we realized that there was a need to transition to quantum safe cyber uh, well before uh, there was ever going to be a scaled quantum computer. I know that we'll have we'll talk about that separately. But moving on then to quantum uh, sensing, uh, this is an area that does not get a lot of attention. If you look at the majority of the press on quantum technologies, the majority of discussions at conferences, you and I were just recently at another quantum conference, uh, the majority of discussions are in the computing field, but not in the sensing field. People don't know enough about sensing. And so we realized that was an untouched area relative to quantum computing. And so we decided that was an area worth uh, worthy of exploration. And so the gestation period was a period in which I think is very important. One thing is you talked about pattern recognition, Chris, over the many years now that I've been building companies, one of the things I've learned uh, is to really first look broadly, understand the nexus, the convergence point of a technology maturation uh, with market readiness, with impact on real world problems, real world problems. That's something that always has stuck with me since the very beginning when I was applying advanced technology to neuroscience and to uh, different medical issues that people had uh, in that field. And so, and so for us during this initial gestation and uh, nurturing period, it was a period where we could really explore very broadly, engage with many academics. We wrote many papers during this period. So if you look at our papers, my group and I wrote a, wrote a series of papers on how we could use uh, different techniques to simulate quantum dynamics on GPUs. That was one of the insights we came up with during this period that we can use GPUs, uh, these uh, ASICs, these application-specific integrated circuits that the audience, I'm sure, is familiar with uh, from many, many companies. Google, of course, makes their own version of this ASIC called the TPU, a tensor processing unit. And NVIDIA, of course, makes their own series of GPUs. And many companies, of course, now are in that game. And so what we predicted back during this uh, initial ramp-up period was that GPUs and other similar ASICs would become so powerful 
that we can begin to do really interesting work on these kinds of platforms. So this, this initial period, Chris, was critical to uh, attracting wonderful talent. We attracted talent using uh, um, uh, many, many different uh, channels uh, and outreach efforts. One of them is called the residency program, which we'll get to when we talk about workforce development. Okay. Uh, and and many academic engagements and collaboration. So yeah. this was a critical period for us, Chris. Yeah. So great. So thank you for sharing that. I want to, and a perfect segue. I want to ask you about uh, the portfolio, right? I mean, back to your point about you know real world use cases that deliver benefits. So. Um, you know, one of Sandbox AQ's divisions is focused on encryption management for large enterprises and governments, especially in the face of the store now decrypt later attacks, which are occurring, right? Can you take us through what your offering is in this area and why it's so critical for your customer? It certainly ties to the, you know, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, your partnership with NIST, um, and it's getting a lot of attention now, right? Uh, government agencies are, I think they have six months to put together a plan and submit it, Right. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. And and before we jump into that, Chris, if I could, just to follow on from your previous uh, question, just talking about the resources you need to launch into these areas, such as cyber and things like that. Yeah. One thing we realized is that we needed very significant resources, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to get into and scale in these areas. And I just want to acknowledge and and, and, and recognize and thank so many different uh, entities who came together uh, to support this work. Um, and, you know, Eric Schmidt, of course, uh, who was a senior advisor to us while we were inside of uh, of Alphabet and then uh, transitioned to become the chairman of the company and then personally invested uh, in the company as well. Uh, and then if we look at uh, T. Rowe Price, uh, the large asset manager, a $2.1 trillion asset manager out of Maryland, uh, became an investor. Guggenheim became an investor, Guggenheim Partners. And we I just want to make a note and um, tribute to Scott Minard, uh, the chief investment officer of Guggenheim, who just passed away last week, but an incredible talent and leader in the investing in technology sphere and, tech, and investing in general. Uh, and then other investors such as Paladin Capital, who are focused on cybersecurity, which we'll talk about now in a minute, and then Section 32, which is focused on life sciences, uh, as well as folks like Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce, Jim right. Breyer, uh, a wonderful, talented, very successful investor who has led the way in so many innovation cycles. Jim has been absolutely critical to uh, the success of this company uh, and many others. So we really benefited tremendously by uh, nurturing first and then coming out to the market with a, a much more mature platform and uh, goals and roadmaps, and also even our first customers right off the bat. And we'll talk about customers in a minute. So I think yeah. that was a key part of our story, Chris, was to engage with very serious scaled investors who really have a long-term vision and long horizon uh, to scale very large companies. Yeah. No, thank you for calling that out. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. It's good perspective. So, so let me now get to your question on cyber. I think what's happening in cyber now is absolutely fascinating. Cyber uh, continues to be a battlefield, literally, on the global stage. And we see that playing out now uh, in the uh, war in Ukraine, of course. We see that playing out uh, globally. We see corporate espionage on the rise where uh, multiple people 
uh, from state-sponsored actors have been arrested in the last uh, two, three years, some just in the last few weeks, uh, doing corporate espionage using cyber cyber techniques on behalf of companies, but more often on behalf of large states. And so this is this is a very, very uh, critical moment for cyber. And add to all that, we now have to relook at all the encryption that we use. And so the reader, the, the listeners today, of course, will know that we have different kinds of encryption. Uh, and today, in today's conversation, we'll focus on the kinds of encryption we use for asymmetric encryption, asymmetric keys that are used for public key uh, encryption. And when you and I, Chris, want to share uh, confidential information uh, from two different locations, of course, the way to do that, to initiate that conversation, would be with public key cryptography. And for 40 plus years now, the primary algorithm that we use uh, to generate and uh, the kind of keys that we use are in the algorithm known as RSA, Rivest, Shamir, and Edelman, uh, three brilliant individuals who developed this idea in the 70s, based, of course, on previous work from Diffie and Hillman uh, and others. And so uh, many, many different ways that people have understood what to do back in the 70s led to canonical formats of encryption that we now use for 40 plus years. Unfortunately, Chris, as the listeners may know, these types of encryption protocols will be broken by scaled quantum computers. And so it is time now for the transition. And let me say, by the way, Chris, before we get to the quantum cyber aspect, let me say that when we go and work with banks and governments and telcos and other large key pieces of our societal infrastructure, we find that they're still using MD5 and SHA-1. And Chris, as you know, these are protocols that were broken uh, more than 10 years ago, not by <laughs> quantum computers, but by a laptop. Right. And so it is really critical that we start to scan and relook at all the encryption we're using in our large companies, in governments, personally, on our phones. And this is the moment that we need to discard uh, MD5, SHA-1, and other broken protocols that are classically broken. And of course, we now are embarking, uh, thanks to NIST and thanks to the many counterparts around the world in more than two dozen countries, we're now going to embark upon uh, a very important transition to quantum-safe encryption protocols. Jack, our listeners are always interested in the perennial question, client. You sort of implied uh, at a meta level who you might be working with. I read I think on the website, you're working with Vodafone Business, SoftBank Mobile, Wix, Mount Sinai Health System, and the U.S. federal government, among others. Can you tell us about some of these engagements? I mean, I don't want to sure, sure, violate any proprietary information, but no, sure, um, absolutely. the way you're applying the company's crypto framework, right, is, is the key aspect of the portfolio? Well, yeah, so basically, all these types of companies and governments, and we recently were very excited uh, that... Uh, you know, it was reported that the DOD now has given us a contract as well. Very excited about that uh, to offer cyber to help. Congratulations. National security. Yeah, you can imagine. Thank Oof. you that um, the team has done an incredible job, both on the core platform, but also in meeting all the standards 
that would be necessary in all these different areas. If you can imagine the telco area, highly regulated area, mm -hmm. uh, the banking area, we have quite a few banking customers now, uh, as well as uh, the healthcare area with Mount Sinai. Wonderful to work with the folks at Mount Sinai, one of the largest hospitals in New York City, uh, hospital systems, uh, because they have now have multiple hospitals. And of course, now with the DOD, the US federal government, and again, many, many hoops you have to run through to uh, prove that your technology meets all the standards right. of these different industries. And so when we look at Mount Sinai and the engagement to protect patient data, to make sure that patient data, which we know is covered under HIPAA, HIPAA is the compliance framework that uh, all U.S. patient data must adhere to in order to protect the confidentiality of that data. And now it is important that we look at the encryption used uh, to send that data, share that data between different parts of hospitals, between medical providers and hospitals, and also, of course, to store that data securely. And uh, all this means that we have to really make sure that uh, we look at the encryption that underlies that. And the definition of HIPAA itself is now going to change from a compliance perspective over the next uh, two, three years because of the need to move from RSA to a post-RSA world. Uh, when we look at telcos, uh, all of us in our lives, in our business lives, certainly use VPNs, virtual private networks, and now we'll have to transition those VPNs from RSA-based VPNs to ones that use a post-RSA or quantum-safe protocol. So telcos, such as Vodafone and others, are critical to that transition. And then, of course, you have uh, the federal government, uh, which is a core piece of infrastructure for uh, the U.S., of course, and then other governments in other countries to their societies. And it's very important that we help protect the national security of these countries uh, by helping these governments. And I'm happy to say that on December 9th, uh, the U.S. Congress, uh, the Senate on that day and the House right before that passed a law uh, bipartisan, I should mention, unanimous uh, consent to that law in the Senate uh, and passed a law that requires the transition uh, for the federal government uh, from today's encryption protocols to the new uh, to the new protocols. And that was now signed. And so that is now the law of the land. And so there's been a lot of great policy work. And uh, I want to also praise the National Security Council uh, and the uh, intelligence community for supporting this kind of work uh, with national security memos, NSMs, they're called, and executive orders. Uh, these are critical to setting the pace for the public and the private sector to transition. So a lot of activity, Chris, with these customers, uh, telco, banking, healthcare, government, but also in policy to make sure that the policies match the, the need. There's a critical need right now for all of us to protect this data, and that's because of SNDL. So perhaps now we can talk about that. Well, so the, again, the rate and pace at which this whole space is growing, right, um, sort of requires organic as well as inorganic growth, right? I read that you guys recently acquired a French startup called CryptoSense uh, with the, the, right, the goal of enhancing the cybersecurity capabilities of your encryption management solution. And just wondering, you know, how does this company expand your capabilities and how will it then enhance your solution set? Like what, what's the piece that they're bringing to the equation, if you will? As we were growing our 
platform and building new features in, particularly the scanning technology. We call it AQ Analyzer. This is a piece of enterprise software, Chris, that crawls around uh, the network of a customer. Uh, they could run it themselves if they wish to. Many of them do do that on premises or in the cloud. And uh, as they do that, they cover vulnerabilities, encryption tools that are being used that are either broken by classical means or will be broken by quantum means. And AQ Analyzer, we were growing that tool, adding new features, and our customers started telling us that they love the tool, they're using the tool, Chris, but they we really needed to add additional features, features that would help analyze key stores, different libraries, mm. different application sets, that uh, what kind of encryption were they all using. And what we realized is we heard from a number of customers that CryptoSense, this uh, nice startup uh, based in Paris and uh, with a footprint in, in France, the UK, and the US, uh, we heard that this is a company that had some of those features. Uh, and so we opened a dialogue with uh, the wonderful team at CryptoSense. Uh, they've been going for about seven, eight years, Wow! focused in this particular area of analyzing encryption in uh, certain aspects of people's uh, libraries and applications and key stores. And we realized that if they joined our platform, if they joined the Sandbox AQ family, that would be a, a big win, a one plus one equals three a synergy. And so that's in fact what happened. Uh, Great. Wonderful team there, Graham, Clement, the founders and others at uh, at CryptoSense did an incredible job building a very focused team, building great technology, already had a number of initial uh, customers coming in through the door. And so together now, we, we acquired that company over the summer, integrated the two teams. They're now working seamlessly on AQ Analyzer. And now AQ Analyzer, we you know probably saved two years of product development by having the two teams work together and it's not just the product development, it's also the go-to-market, uh, engaging with CryptoSense, um, the team, and now integrating them into our overall team really meshed very, very well. And the cultures, I should mention, Chris, were very similar. We have a learning culture. They have a learning culture. We both really meshed. And if the what I've learned, I've done probably more than 15 acquisitions uh, in, in the last number of years. And uh, in, in previous companies, not in Sandbox, but in previous companies. And yeah. what I've learned over the years is that it's not just the product fit, it's really the culture fit that you have to yeah. look at. So so that was a key uh, marker for both of us, Graham, Clement, ourselves. We really looked at the culture fit and really were pleased. And I'm happy to say that we just had a big, big offsite of the whole company a few months ago. And the cultures were were absolutely meshed together, so it was really great to see that. So that AQ Analyzer, fantastic! What a amazing sounding tool. I'd like to learn more about that maybe offline, because that seems key, right? How do you find where the vulnerability is, and then because then you can address it. You can exactly because the the analogy just to, to to dwell on your point there just for a second. The analogy I would use is if somebody, a patient, an individual, suddenly has symptoms. 
what they do first is they go to their doctor and they say, hey, I've got these symptoms. The first thing the doctor does is a diagnostic, right? They would do right. lab tests, blood tests. Uh, they would do a CAT scan or something. And so that's what AQ Analyzer is. It's a, yeah, cool. it's an MRI scan for your network. <laughs> to find I love out. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, hey, for the, and, a little tip for the marketing guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Chris, what we, what we focus on is encryption. What we don't focus on, what we do not focus on is worms and viruses and firewall vulnerabilities. We really leave that to the traditional cyber uh, players in the field, right? There's lots of great companies out there who will help you with your virus management and and, and worms and looking at all kinds of uh, spear phishing and phishing and vulnerabilities like that. We really leave that. The vulnerabilities that we look for specifically is an area that people had not focused on. And this mm -hmm. is the area of encryption vulnerabilities. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk um, sort of strategic partnerships for a moment. I read that you guys are working with Deloitte and EY, among other professional services firms, and helping advise their clients on how to build new computationally intensive solutions leveraging AI and quantum. Can you tell me a little bit about those relationships and how they're driving adoption of quantum safe solutions? Happy to. Yeah, Deloitte and EY are wonderful global partners now uh, with us. And what I've learned over the years, uh, my specialty is uh, building and creating and growing uh, enterprise solution companies. And when you deal in enterprise solutions, you really have to look at an ecosystem. You cannot do everything yourself. And so if you look at, for example, the model of Mark Benioff, what he did with Salesforce, where over the years, uh, he created wonderful software, the CRM software that Salesforce offers. And then what he realized is he needed partners to adapt that software and customize it to large customers. Right. And so while Salesforce itself has a team that could do some of that, a lot of the customization and implementation of Salesforce software happens with Deloitte or Accenture as two examples there. And uh, that has really led to the scaling, the very dramatic scaling of Salesforce as a company and allowed them to do what they do best, which is to create wonderful enterprise software and to allow Deloitte and others to do what they do best, which is uh, to be uh, a broad global footprint of uh, IT folks who can really get in and adapt that software and customize it to the needs of that particular large company or government. And so given that uh, Eric Schmidt, with his background in enterprise, uh, particularly uh, before his Google days, uh, created and scaled many enterprise platforms uh, at Novell and Sun and other places, Jim Breyer, with his many, many years of experience uh, in scaling enterprise companies, and then, of course, Mark Benioff himself, being also an investor and an advisor to us, uh, you know, Eric, Mark, Jim, and our other advisors were instrumental in helping us map out a strategy of engaging with Lloyd EY to have them come aboard as key partners of our firm. And what we're doing right now is training teams at Deloitte in EY. That's happening, you know, as we speak, the last few months and, and the next coming up, up months, and already going to market. We already have joint engagements and joint go-to-market. Uh, proposals going out with both Deloitte and EY, uh, and it's it's great to see the kind of scale you can achieve by doing that. Uh, yeah. Deloitte and EY have both scaled their uh, IT consulting practices 
way beyond their audit practices, as you know. And recently, <laughs> EY, of course, has announced, I'll let them speak for themselves, but they've announced that they're going to be actually splitting those two companies off, right? The auditing practice and the consulting practice. And right. that just speaks to how fast the consulting practices have grown. Deloitte and EY each have over 300,000 people in their hmm. company. They're growing uh, by leaps and bounds, and they're wonderful partners to have uh, as we scale. So we do what we do best, which is create wonderful enterprise software, Chris, and they do what they do best, which is to take that software and adapt it to the needs of those particular customers. Yeah, great. So Jack, outside of encryption management, I know there's it's a broader portfolio. Can you share with our listeners sure. you know, what the other areas um, does Sandbox AQ focus on and maybe a little insight into who your customers and or partners are there? Sure. Yeah. Beyond cyber, another one of our divisions is quantum molecular simulation. And molecular simulation is an area that has been thought about for years. But what we realized uh, over the past number of years is that we really could do a lot with the GPU platforms. Uh, these ASIC platforms, be it TPU from Google, be it GPUs from NVIDIA or others, these were increasing in capability very, very rapidly. You know, of course, that the G in GPU uh, is for graphics. And so these right. Chips initially were made uh, to render video games, exactly, Chris, right, yeah. uh, to render video games uh, in a more realistic way. And we appreciate the evolution of Doom, the game, over the years. <laughs> if you yeah. compare it uh, from 15, 20 years ago to today, it looks quite different. So thank you to the GPUs for that. But, but then we realized in the AI field that what we were really doing when you looked at a large neural network is we're doing matrix algebra. We're taking, uh, we can look at it as a vector if we wish to, if you have an image, say from ImageNet, one of the large canonical data sets of images, 14 plus million images uh, created by Fei-Fei Li, who's now at Stanford and her colleagues. Fei-Fei is a wonderful uh, advisor to us as well. And um, Fei-Fei and her team revolutionized uh, the deep learning area by creating this data set, holding the contest that they had, uh, the visual pattern recognition contest that they did every year. And that's where Jeff Hinton and uh, his team, you know, shined so brightly when they came in with their deep learning techniques. And all this, uh, all, all of us in this field came to a realization that GPUs uh, could accelerate the computation of these multi-layered networks, because essentially we can think of the images when we unroll the image, the pixel values as a vector, we can think of the weights uh, across different, uh, different layers as a matrix. And therefore we're back into linear algebra. We're back to matrix algebra, matrix multiplication. And that is what GPUs do really, really well. We can abstract that beyond that, even into this multidimensional idea called a tensor, which you can think of as a multidimensional matrix. Uh, and that's obviously part of the birth of the tensor processing unit, the TPU developed at Google so effectively, uh, which has yielded so many good results. And also other companies now that have yielded so many wonderful uh, versions of their own ASICs, uh, be it GraphCore with their IPU, uh, and many others, uh, even Tesla realized that it needed to create its own version right. of a GPU called the D1 to huh. drive its self-driving car and also now to drive its robots. 
And so what we realized a few years ago is, is that the tremendous activity in the ASIC space uh, would, lead, would lead to chipsets, Chris, that would give us more capabilities, not just for video games and not just for deep learning, but also now to do simulation of mm. quantum dynamics. To simulate what it means, Chris, if you are at a biopharma company and you say, hey, Jack, I've got a molecule. I think this would fit well into a T cell to protect that T cell from being shut down by a tumor. And it would help the T cell to go fight that tumor. So-called immunotherapy is what we call it in the oncology field. Uh, I can then take that molecule and simulate its activity against that receptor. Right. Because when right. we have a molecule, it's kind of a lock and key. We want to see if it fits into that receptor and we can start to simulate that. And of course, quantum computers, when they scale, will add to the capabilities here. But already we're seeing very, very good response by using very scaled arrays of GPUs. And this is a wonderful tool using uh, the quantum dynamics equations uh, that we received over 100 years ago from mm. the founders of quantum mechanics. Uh, and little did they know back then that 100 years later, we'd be using their equations in this impactful way. So the customers here, back to your question, are biopharma companies initially. These are biotechs and uh, pharma companies that have molecules they want to test, they want to simulate. And we can simulate billions and billions of permutations of these molecules in the time it would have taken, uh, you know, the time it would have taken to do this in a lab would be years compared to what we can do in simulation. So just like Airbus and Boeing now use simulators, simulated wind tunnels electronically to look at uh, wind, you know, turbine design and uh, airplane design, uh, that is on the, uh, that's, you know, using aerodynamics and fluid dynamics, a different branch of physics. We do the same thing in simulation in quantum dynamics. And so the customers here are wonderful biotech companies. We're working right now on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's right now. Uh, and hopefully in 2023, we'll announce some of these wonderful customers and we'll be, we'll be moving into oncology very soon, working on cancer drugs. Uh, so we're very excited about the impact we've already had in this area and will have in the, in the coming years. Beyond biopharma, Chris, we're looking at material design, material science. Uh, this is a critical area for molecular and atomic simulation uh, where battery chemistry and other material design is critical to the clean energy future that we all want to see. So, so these are wonderful areas that you'll see us grow into over the next few years. Great. I look forward to, to hearing more about it in 2023. Very exciting. Jack, I want to circle back to sort of the workforce conversation. You'd mentioned it earlier, and I want to just kind of drill down a little bit more into challenges facing a company like Sandbox AQ and finding talent. I'm wondering, you know, at a meta level, how you go about recruiting for your company. Um, you know, do you have affiliations with the universities, and are there roles maybe in specific disciplines that are harder to fill than others? To your earlier comment, are you are there certain companies where you're quote unquote, poaching or encouraging employees to come work at Sandbox based on skills they have in other disciplines or verticals? Thanks, Chris, for asking that. It's a fundamental question uh, that you're posing. And I think is one of the key challenges of the rise of the quantum technology movement. What we have experienced over the years and what I've done in previous companies is really take the long view. 
uh, when you look at workforce development, talent development, you can't just be looking at programs that yield something in just six months or seven months. Uh, yes, there might be some interesting ways of doing training uh, to enhance people's understanding in the near term. But ultimately, if you want a big sector, a sector that scales to global proportions, you really have to be investing in a very long-term manner. And what we have realized is that universities are great partners, as well as on-the-job workforce training. So let me start with universities. Uh, this is where a number of years ago, we started the residency program. The residency program is an opportunity for master's degrees, PhDs, and postdocs to get on-the-job experience while they are getting their degree or postdoc uh, period. And so they do that by joining us at Sandbox AQ for a period of three months up to 12 months. Uh, we pay them a generous stipend during this period of time. We, more importantly, train them in a boot camp way and other methods uh, in you know, world-class uh, programming and coding. It's not something you often pick up inside of a graduate program is, yeah. uh, is great programming. Uh, on, unfortunately, most grad students produce what we call spaghetti code. It works <laughs> once for your thesis, Chris, but then it falls apart after that. But you know, having been in a place like Google where you're talking about code that has to serve five, six, seven billion people and not crack, uh, you really get skills about how to train people in that kind of mission-critical coding. Of course, AI techniques, deep learning techniques, we're seeing the rise of the foundation models, as Fei-Fei Li calls them, uh, the LLMs, the large language models uh, that you've seen now, such as GPT and Lambda and Palm and many others, and of course, the VLMs, the visual learning models, such as Dolly 2 and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion. Right. And so we train them in all these different AI techniques. We train them in quantum techniques, uh, be it in algorithmic areas, be it in cybersecurity that is safe against quantum, or be it in hands-on quantum sensing, another area that we are deep into. And so the individual gains a tremendous amount of experience uh, during this period of residency, goes back then, finishes up their PhD or their postdoc. We now also offer full postdocs. And our experience working with students from MIT and Harvard, from Caltech, uh, from uh, many universities overseas, such as uh, University of Cambridge and Oxford, Imperial College in London, from the Max Planck Institutes in Germany, uh, in, in France, uh, we've been working with several universities there, now beginning to kick off relationship at the Polytechnique, uh, which is a wonderful set of institutions um, based just near Paris, uh, and globally looking at a, uh, a series of PhD students and postdocs that really represent the future. This has been a critical investment that we spend very significant dollars at Sandbox AQ every year on. We have a whole team, in fact. Uh, our university team that just focuses on nurturing and investing in this residency program. And people can find that more information on our website uh, of how to join that program. And it's a program, I think, that's already yielded. And by the way, in our program, Chris, there's no strings attached. People can join our program, get trained by us, finish their PhD, go work elsewhere. That's fine by us. We're, we're really here to help the whole ecosystem. Uh, Great. And, and that's been a wonderful a wonderful thing to see. But you also see people such as David Joseph, uh, one of our senior cybersecurity scientists who went through the PhD program at Imperial, joined us for a residency during that period of time, 
uh, and then chose to, chose to join us after his PhD as a, as a full-time scientist. Ty Danae Bradley, I want to highlight uh, her work in mathematics, uh, which impacts so many different areas. Mathematics is fundamental to QIS. Uh, and she was a resident with us uh, as a postdoc after her PhD at CUNY, uh, and then uh, joined us as a full-time scientist after her postdoc with us. So this is a kind of investment that you have to make, Chris, if you're going to be serious about uh, ramping up the workforce. We also, I should mention, do trainings at companies uh, because it's important to train on the job the engineers who are in the job market today, who are in the workforce today. We've done that at Vodafone. We've done that at quite a number of companies around the world. Uh, and so training people on the job is also absolutely critical. Uh, we haven't found that poaching is the way to go because there's so <laughs> few people out there who have knowledge. Um, so it's it's mainly people who are coming out of a lot of great PhD programs and postdocs. It's 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 um, people joining us through acquisitions, such as the CryptoSense team. They brought 15 incredibly talented people with them, many of them with PhDs. I should mention that more than two-thirds of our team at Sandbox AQ has a PhD or advanced degree, and the remainder have many, many years of engineering talent or other talents uh, and experience that they have. So it's a very technical team. Uh, it's a team that's rooted uh, in the kinds of things that people uh, study and focus on in the academic sphere. And we are continually writing papers, uh, not only ourselves, we just had uh, two papers in uh, the Nature publications. One was on cyber, another in a different area, uh, but also continuing to collaborate with academics in writing these research papers. So that's fundamental. If you want to create big change in the world uh, from a talent development and workforce development point of view, that's the kind of investment you need to make. That's terrific. I, I encourage our listeners to investigate that further and point colleagues to it as well, the residency program. So, Jack, we've come to the end of our time here. It's been a wonderful conversation. I always like to end by asking my guests to share a vision, look into your you know, crystal ball or whatever. Give us a sense of where you think quantum computing, quantum tech, QIS might be in say, three to five or maybe even 10 years, and more broadly, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have on how we live and work? Sure, Chris. It's a fundamental question. And we know from past innovation cycles that those of us in the innovation area tend to um, overestimate the short-term impact and underestimate the long-term impact. And we've seen that again and again. So having taken some lessons uh, from those cycles, if you look at the cycle initially of ARPANET, DARPANET, internet starting in 1969. If you look at the web cycle starting in 1990, 1991 with Tim Berners-Lee and the work at CERN uh, and then glo going global from there. If we look on the hardware side at the various chipsets over the years, including the evolution of GPUs that we mentioned earlier in this conversation, when we look at all these kinds of, and of course now the revolution in deep learning and foundation models, I think quantum technologies are going to be right up there with the most impactful technologies of society that we've ever had in human history. Now, that means that one, we need to take the broad view of quantum technology, not just quantum computing, but also quantum sensing, uh, quantum safe cyber, quantum communications, uh, quantum simulation. All these are part of the quantum world. And so I encourage the listeners today, Chris, on your program here, 
uh, to really take a broad view. Uh, and when we look at not so much three to five years, but more five to 10 years, I think it's going to be yeah. a very, very significant impact in the world. Quantum sensing will be much more impactful in the near term than quantum computing because, of course, they're here today. They do not need error correction. And we're seeing a significant impact in the next three to five years in that realm. Uh, when it comes to cyber, we're going to have to make our changes well before five to 10 years. We have to make those changes now because of store now, decrypt later, SNDL. Uh, but over five to 10 years, we're going to see our world change. You know, Silicon Valley and the tech sectors in every different country have been very good at the world of bits, the world where we uh, manipulate bits in software, in data centers. Uh, to uh, analyze uh, data. AI is another example of a bits-oriented approach. But of course, the world of atoms is much bigger than the world of bits. The world of atoms is the world of pharmaceuticals, the world of batteries, uh, battery chemistries for clean energy, uh, the world of new materials to make uh, airplanes lighter and stronger and more fuel efficient. All this is the world of atoms, and we haven't done much in the tech sector to help the world of atoms as much as we have the world of bits. And so this world of both bits and atoms, uh, as Nick Negroponte used to like to talk about, is a world that we really now need to embrace. And that's why quantum technology, which both embraces bits and atoms, is going to be so impactful. This is the kind of convergence uh, that uh, we really can see significant impact in our society. Better medicines faster, better technology for clean energy, uh, the kinds of impact on cyber that are necessary to protect the world's data, confidential data for healthcare, patient data, other critical areas of cyber. And so this is going to be a very, very impactful world that we see. And part of what we're seeing is that much of this is also co-fueled, Chris, by the rise of the cloud. The fact that cloud is being adopted so quickly means that many of these technologies will be democratized much faster than previous cycles of innovation. Uh, previous cycles of innovation often required companies, Chris, to buy the technology, put it on premises, so-called on-prem. But A, right. because you can access many of these technologies over the next few years over the cloud, that really democratizes it both for students in academia as well as for commercial partners. And so this is going to be a wild ride over the next five to 10 years, Chris. And I'm excited that you have this podcast focusing on this area. It's wonderful to have venues like this podcast, uh, the Quantum Tech Podcast, to really focus on how we're going to drive this revolution and realize its potential for human impact. Great. Well, thank you, Jack. It's been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. Um, point listeners to the website. It's uh, sandboxaq.com. Yep, sandboxaq.com. Uh, and, and there they can right. find information on the residency program. Uh, and of course, for people interested, Chris, in getting into this field, um, particularly if they want more granular detail on exactly how all this technology works, of course, they're welcome to check out the book online. Uh, if they Google the name of the book, Quantum uh, Computing and Applied Approach, uh, or they can, of course, uh, download it on Kindle or, or, or get a copy of it. And that could form the basis of their understanding. Uh, specifically with Springer, we really made an effort, Chris, to get it priced in a very accessible way. Uh, and often universities get, um, uh, get uh, free access to their students using Springer Link. So most students at universities would not have to pay for 
pay for the book because they have access via Springerlick. So hopefully people have okay. free access to it and uh, can go from there. Yeah, and I encourage people to to check out the book. Also, I just want to mention um, that you guys are on Twitter and YouTube at Sandbox AQ. So social media, you know, another way to connect with you. So thanks, Jack, for joining me today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Um, Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Jack. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And please connect with me on LinkedIn. So this has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.